Dr John Medgar is the chairman of the BFO and was chairman of APRA from 2003 to 2014, reforming and leading the supervision of our financial system through the crucial years before and during the GFC. He is currently the chair of ING as well as a member of the Council of UTS. Dr Lekar was appointed an officer of the Order of Australia in 2008 for his considerable services to financial regulation. Over and above these rich contributions, Dr John Laker, I think, is also known for his warm and generous character. Hello, Dr Laker. Elprisa, <laughs> good morning. Thank you for joining us for another instalment in a series of podcasts as part of the BFO's Young Ambassadors Project. Thank you. You started your career in Canberra at the Treasury before completing your PhD at the London School of Economics. You worked for the IMF in Washington and then at the RBA for 20 years before joining APRA. You were a founding director of the Centre for International Finance and Regulation, and you have had positions on a number of boards as well as various panels and continue to teach at the University of Sydney and advise the Basel Committee. So, you've worked in many different parts of the world and you've had roles across many areas of finance, across regulation, education and industry now. Can you pinpoint an area, or perhaps it might be a time or place, where you face the most difficult ethical dilemmas? Well, thank you and good morning, Elpitha, and good morning to BFO's signatories. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and with such a flattering introduction, uh, I can uh, only reply by being generous with my time and answers. When I look back over that, uh, that long history, the character-forming period, obviously, was the global financial crisis. It was the one that, one period that really focused APRA on a very fundamental element of trust, which is trust that the community thinks their money is safe, that the community trusts banks to keep their money safe. So in that period, we were focused not so much on an ethical question, but on a fundamental question of the safety and soundness of individual banks and the regulated financial system as a whole. What we did see, though, was the breakdown of trust in major markets offshore. It was a global crisis, uh, it was a financial crisis, and we saw offshore the ultimate failure of culture, the sort of excessive and reckless risk-taking, misconduct, manipulation of benchmark interest rates, the loss of sight lines to customers. And ironically, looking back on it, it was that environment offshore which really gave birth to the banking and finance oath because the industry leaders who developed that oath were wanting to signal loud and clear that this was not happening in Australia, that Australia was different. For the period of the global financial crisis and for several years afterwards, that was the case. Our banking system was resilient, profitable and strong. The one ethical example of, well, one example of poor behaviour that always stuck in my mind was when I was doing research for a speech, I saw in an Irish newspaper the photograph of three professionals, middle-aged and a bit older, captured walking down the street, two men, one women, who looked just like ordinary, could have been ordinary Aussies on their way to a bank meeting or seeing their children graduate. They were just ordinary people. What was distinguishing about them, though, was that they were the first three people in Ireland to go to jail as a consequence of behaviour during the global financial crisis. Now, they weren't rogue traders. They weren't manipulating benchmark interest rates. One was the company secretary, 
the other was the chief operating officer, and the third, the woman, was the assistant manager of Anglo-Irish Bank. And they went to prison for periods of up to three years because they hid the bank accounts of their chief executive from the taxation authorities. So they put misguided loyalty to their chief executive over their responsibilities to the bank and to the community more generally. They clearly hadn't asked that simple question, should we do this? Now, there was pressure on other staff in Anglo-Irish at the time to continue hiding the accounts, and they answered that question differently. They said, no, we should not do this. They blew the whistle and it all unfolded. But here were people who otherwise thought themselves to be good people who lost their moral compass and probably never ever stopped to think, spend a few minutes thinking, should I do this? And that, that lesson from that particular incident that affected people, you know, which you could say ordinary professionals is always stuck in my mind as one example of where the moral compass of an individual is, is so critical to ethical behaviour. So if we roll forward from the global financial crisis, clearly Australia wasn't immune from the misconduct issues that we saw offshore and we all know what happened over the last four or five years and the, the kind of searing examination of conduct through the Hain Royal Commission. Fortunately, I've been out of APRA in that period, so I look on it. But it's clear that the community's trust has more than one dimension. It's not just that the community wants to trust their bank to keep their money safe. It's that they want to trust their bank, that the bank is acting in the customer's best interest and providing products that are appropriate to the needs of that customer. And that dimension of trust has been badly eroded, and that's why we've, we've seen the, the fallout from the Royal Commission to, to be as severe as it was. So do you think that it's been a matter of that trust, that the definition of trust has actually changed over time? The relationship between customers and financial institutions has expanded and those expectations have changed, or is it that financial institutions institutions haven't properly explored and understood what they should be fulfilling in terms of their purpose and the trust that they should be imbuing in the community. I think that the voice of the customer wasn't heard loudly for a long time. And it was, in some ways, banking and the commoditization of products made it harder for that voice to be heard because the distance between bank staff and bank customers became longer and longer. And during the financial crisis, the GFC, customers were really focused on the safety of their funds uh, and the protection of their own financial circumstances. So it was very much a um, focus on trusting the bank to not lose their money when offshore, Banks were failing. We saw a run on Northern Rock, uh, runs in other countries which perhaps didn't get the same publicity. That was the focus then of customers and they, they were reassured ultimately by a government guarantee. I think as the dust settled on the global financial crisis and these egregious examples of mis-selling of financial products, poor financial advice, etc., started to manifest in Australia that the, you know, the voice of the customer became louder. It then was reflected uh, through the political process culminating in the Royal Commission. The customer voice is now much louder. Social media has given them a way of expressing that voice and the response of finance institutions to the Royal Commission has really now zeroed on the relationship between 
bank and its customers in a much sharper way than it has been in the past. Which then takes you to this very fundamental question, what is the purpose of a financial institution? The kind of short-term, the glib answer used to be, well, it's to make money. It's to make profit for shareholders. And banks and financial institutions around the globe wrestled with this, what they thought was a trade-off between the purpose of the bank and profit. The purpose of a financial institution, surely, is to improve the financial well-being of its customers through providing products and services that are appropriate to the customer's needs and the customer understands them. That's the purpose. And that statement of purpose wasn't heard loudly until the events of the last couple of years, but I think a lot of institutions have gone back and reviewed that clear purpose and have accepted that the idea that there's a trade-off between purpose and profit is, is what the, uh, the group of 30 thought leaders said was a false dilemma. There really isn't a long-term trade-off between promoting the customer's interest and sustainable profits. And I was always struck by a quote from Martin Wolf, who's a highly respected financial times commentator that he said, if a firm tries to substitute profit for purpose, it will fail at both. So I think one of the positive consequences coming out of these series of uh, unfortunate episodes, these egregious episodes, is that, uh, that the institutions themselves have gone back to look at the purpose that, for which they provide financial services and raising their perspective, their time horizon to balance all stakeholder interests, not just shareholder interests. And over time, good customer outcomes should be consistent with sustainable profits. So it should be a win-win for all. But that's been a, it was a, a long and harsh learning experience to get to that point in some cases. Why do you think the Australian experience has been a little bit different to offshore experiences when it comes to this investigation of um, purpose, the, the surfacing of misconduct issues that have really um, brought, brought that debate to the to the surface more. Why do you think Australia has a different experience? Well, Peter, I don't know whether the experience is different. It's different only in degree. The timing is a little different. As I said, during the global financial crisis, the focus clearly here was on soundness of finance institutions and uh, they proved resilient through the crisis because or for a number of factors but one was that they were uh, conservatively governed they didn't get into the structured credit products that brought down institutions abroad they'd had a, a long history of sound profitability they weren't heavily exposed at that time to mortgage markets. There's a whole series of reasons why they went into the crisis in good shape and came through accordingly. And they had a tough regulator breathing down their necks up to the crisis and during it. It was really as the dust settled that this behaviour came out. And when that started to unfold, we didn't look that different from offshore. And the kind of review work that's been done to the CBA report and the Hain Royal Commission reads similarly to reviews that have taken place in countries where they've had earlier and, and sharper problems of customer poor treatment or staff misconduct. It took a little longer for that to unf unfold in Australia, for the spotlight to shift to the treatment of customers, but in that sense we don't look that different. If we turn to our current environment, I think we can acknowledge that this crisis is quite different to the GFC. What do you think the lessons might be from 
the current environment and the current crisis for the finance sector? Do we have three hours to answer that question? <laughs> I, I think there are two distinguishing factors that separate the, the current crisis from the global financial crisis. And the first is even the name. This is not a financial crisis. We are in a health crisis. We have been hit by a demand shock in the terms of, the, of an economist because people's income has dropped, uncertainty is very high, investors have pulled back. So there's a demand shock, but what, what's unique is that there's a supply shock as well. And that's been induced by policy, by closing airports, by shutting down the whole industries as part of the lockdown process. So this is really a tough environment and a unique one. So comment about the worst crisis in a century is correct. So it's a health crisis, it's not a financial crisis, and the challenge is to make sure that as it works out, that it doesn't feed into the financial sector and turn into a financial crisis. So that's, that's one distinguishing characteristic. The second major difference is that the banks, certainly in Australia, are bearing more risk on behalf of the community. In other words, they have become absorbers of the shock. In the global financial crisis around the globe, banks were the transmitter of the shock. And that is a very positive distinguishing characteristic that our banks are strong enough to provide this support through payment pauses, etc., to help provide that bridge to the recovery as and when the COVID-19 pandemic is, is contained or tamed in some way. So for boards of finance institutions, if I can look at it from that perspective, and I'm only on the board of ING, I can't talk on behalf of the other boards, but the priorities for boards are first and foremost, the physical safety and well-being of their own staff. That's fundamental. And the movements of technology into the home, uh, working from home in rather than working from the office, traveling to and from office, the return to work in the office. All of those issues of health and safety are really paramount for a board. The second question is looking after the interest of the, the customer. In, in these very difficult and uncertain times. And there are a lot of people in our community doing it tough, and they would be doing it a lot tougher without the support of the Commonwealth Government uh, and other supports. So protecting the customer at a time of great uncertainty is, is another a major priority. And the, the third is, is preserving the resilience of the financial institution itself, its financial resilience, and here our Certainly our banks and our other regulated institutions are in strong shape. Operational resilience, everything's gone digital. People are relying on the technology being there to service them when they want to make a payment. What people are focusing on in the regulatory world these days are organisational resilience, keeping the, the culture and the improvements to culture ongoing through that crisis. If I can quote from the Central Bank of Ireland Governor, Philip Lane, he said... A telling cultural test for a firm is how it deals with adversity, that it makes sure it protects the interest of customers, even at, if that damages short-term profitability. Now, he made that quote when he was releasing the results of their review of misconduct. He wouldn't have known how prescient it was and how substantial the adversity was that COVID-19 has, has um, generated. But that point that you know, really the telling test is protecting the interest of customers uh, is, is now the test that our financial system is being subject to and to its credit is responding positively. So if we think 
back to um, your explanation about how trust has, you know, dimensions of trust have been explored in different ways through different environments and periods. So we had that trust in the safety of our money, but now it's about trust in customer outcomes and the fairness, fairness. of yeah. institutions. Yeah. Do you think this health crisis and the challenges facing these institutions now, do you see a shift again, perhaps that organisational resilience in, in the challenges facing these institutions now? Do you think we'll see another shift again? It's very hard to know how the, this crisis is going to continue to unfold, Elpitha. And in the thick of a crisis, people who work in finance institutions are under considerable pressure. Their work environment is different. Their dynamics of interacting with their peers is different. I don't think anyone really thinks a Zoom conference is as good as sitting across the table and being able to sense the language and the body language of your executives or your peers in a meeting. So, and there's pressure to respond quickly. And we're seeing that all through society, pressure to be agile and to respond quickly. I don't know, you know how this will unfold. I think the, the changes that have been underway in finance institutions before and after the Hain Royal Commission, I hope will prove enduring so that in a calmer period, we won't have lost the progress on purpose, the progress on culture, progress on accountability and remuneration structures, all of that work to try and embed in system as a whole the focus on customers. I would not like to think we go backwards on that. And in fact, at the moment, the customer is right at the centre of all of the, the tension of finance institutions. So, you know, I'm an optimist by nature. I think the banks have taken enormous uh, steps forward in, in their willingness to bear risk at the moment, and they're in a position to do so. Clearly can't go on forever. The staff in banks are under pressure in the unusual work environment, quite different to what they have known. You know, there may be pressure on them to cut corners, kind of gloss over compliance requirements because they're busy doing something else or under pressure to keep things moving. We still need to make sure that we take time to reflect on whether the way we are doing things is consistent with the focus on customers, focus on prudent risk management, taking time to think about whether this is the right thing to do. All of those elements that form a, the ethical core of, of an institution and the ethical core of an individual, they may be being tested at the moment, but it's the same elements that need to be asserted and hopefully will be reasserted when um, life becomes a little less fraught. What do you think will steer, what will be the most important guide for both the individual and the organisation through that? I think sometimes we want our words and our declarations, our attestations, even the oath we might take to be enough to steer our actions, but do you think that's enough given these pressures and these challenges? Do you think, what do you think will really steer both the individual and the organisation through this? A few years after the, uh, the crisis and while the dust was still settling, the managing director of the IMF at the time, Christine Lagarde, called for a, a culture of greater virtue and integrity at the individual level in financial services. And I've thought about that, virtue and integrity. What does virtue mean? Well, 
help if you descend from a long line of Greek philosophers. Um, I, I was looking at what Plato called the four cardinal virtues, uh, temperance, courage, wisdom, and justice. And in there is courage. And that underpins the banking finance as the willingness to speak up. Courage when it's difficult to call out poor behaviour because your peers are not interested in knowing, your CEO is pressuring you not to. That courage is a fundamental part of a speak up culture and it's a fundamental part of the calibre of a person in an organisation. Integrity, in a nutshell, living up to your word to say you'll do something and you deliver on it. And that is implicit. In fact, it's quite explicit in the oath because we say in these and all other things, my word is my bond. That's integrity. So those two, that courage and that integrity should be enduring qualities. They should be at the fore now and they should be at the fore in the future. And if individuals in their behaviour demonstrate those qualities, if an institution in its behaviour particularly when you look at the integrity of an institution, if it's making a promise to a customer, it delivers on that promise. If it doesn't, it says why, and it remediates. That, those virtues, that, those, those characteristics of virtue and integrity, they should be enduring. They're being tested now. They'll be tested again. But as long as they, they form the elements of a strong ethical core, then... I'd feel confident about the way in which our financial system would ultimately settle after the crisis, after the pandemic crisis, that is. Thank you very much for your time today, Dr John. Thank you, Rupi. Pleasure to talk to you.